begin. We are going to talk about superposition of waves today. So superposition introduces us to the concept of interference, which will lead to the product, the interferometer, or the device called an interferometer, which has all sorts of interesting applications and is really the heart of precision optical measurements, which is something we ought to know a little bit about if we're taking a class in modern optics. So we'll start with a little bit of background, and then we'll jump pretty quickly into the uh, calculations for different interferometers. So superposition is the principle that governs the addition of waves in a linear material, or when you're talking about linear optics. And everything that we're going to do in this class is linear optics. But I think because of that, it's worth pointing out that not all optical systems obey the principle of superposition. So linear optics says the index of refraction of a material determines how fast the light propagates through the material. And this quantity is a material property. And it's, once you know the material, you know the index of refraction. Now there's different ways to express this. You can write the index of refraction in terms of the material susceptibility, chi. And we're not going to do very much with that, uh, with that parameter in this class. And that parameter tells you how much the material gets polarized. So by polarized, it means how much the electron clouds get displaced from their, their oppositely charged nuclei. So how much of a dipole moment you can induce um, in the material as a function of the applied electric field. And in a linear material, the greater the applied electric field, the greater the polarization in the material. And that is what gives rise to the index of refraction. Well, it's sort of like stretching a spring in Hooke's law. The greater the applied force, the greater the displacement of the string. Spring, right? So does Hooke's law hold regardless of the applied force? It doesn't. What happens eventually if you pull a spring far enough? Yeah, or you get a wire. And if you completely uncoil a coiled spring, you now get a wire, and you're not going to be governed by the spring constant of the spring. You're going to be governed by the stiffness of the wire. Right? So at some point, it stops pulling apart. And that's essentially what happens in material. Um, if you increasingly apply an electric field to a material, at some point, you stop just displacing the electrons from their nuclei, and eventually you rip them off and ionize the, the material. And the material stops behaving like a linear material. Okay, so you could plot the polarization of the material as a function of the applied electric field, and it, it's linear over a region, and then it rolls off. And you could describe the polarization then in terms of a Taylor series for the uh, atomic susceptibility and the applied electric field. And in linear optics, we only concern ourselves with the linear term. That's where the term comes from. It's also this linear region. And it turns out it's, it's fairly difficult to apply a large enough electric field to cause a material to behave nonlinearly. So you need lasers to do it, because you need to have high-intensity fields. And you need to compress those lasers into short pulses to get a large energy in a, a very short time frame. So unless you're really trying, you don't see this nonlinear effect. Okay, so with that said, we're going to deal with um, linear optics. And if the material is linear, then 
a perturbation or an electric field applied to a material will just add to any other external fields applied. So we can talk about waves. A uh, wave in the electric field will add to any other waves in the electric field, and likewise with magnetic fields. So optical waves propagating through a material, if we know how to describe each optical wave that goes through the material, we just add those waves at any point in the material. That's called the principle of superposition. The irradiance is the quantity that we usually observe, not the electric field. And so if we want to talk about the irradiance of the light at a particular point, and it's being illuminated with multiple waves, we have to add up we have to add up the fields, and okay, so add up the electric fields first to get the total electric field at that point. And then we use our expression for the irradiance that depends on the field squared. So we'd square that total. Okay, so that's got some uh, significant consequences. What if you have, let me write my expression for the irradiance of a field 1 as uh, 1 half epsilon naught C times E1 squared. And the irradiance of field 2 is 1 half epsilon naught C times E2 squared. And let's say you measure the electric field in certain units such that we can write E1 is equal to 1, E2 is equal to 1, whatever unit I choose to measure the electric field in. And the irradiance I measure in units such that I1 is equal to 1 unit and I2 is also equal to 1 unit. So I'm just expressing it this way to make the numbers easy and avoid dealing with these constants of proportionality. What happens if I add up these two waves, or if I have these two waves and they overlap at a point? What is the irradiance at that point? Two waves, each of one unit of irradiance. It's four. Right? So the irradiance doesn't add. What adds is the electric fields. We add up the electric fields, and we get an electric field that's twice as large. And when we square that, we get an irradiance that's four times as large as either of the, the fields. Um, does that violate conservation of energy? We have two waves, each that has an irradiance, a power per unit area of one unit. And we add them up, and we get Well, let's see. If uh, okay, so that's an interesting point. There may be a time averaging effect here. So let's say E1 equals E2 equals uh, E naught times cosine omega t. These are waves, so I could write it like um, omega t minus say kx. But if I evaluate this at a particular position, say x equals 0, I can neglect that term. 
So when I've calculated the irradiance of the first field, the irradiance is let's see, epsilon naught c times the time average of the electric field squared. So I've already, calcu I've already included the time average in this quantity for the irradiance. So it's not the case that the uh, time averaging is going to reduce that irradiance. Okay. So we're assuming that these fields are in phase, so that they add. We know that waves can add up destructively. They can be out of phase, and then they would subtract. Um, but if they are in phase, it would seem to violate conservation of energy. That's all, if we can agree that there seems to be a paradox, then we can set about how to resolve it. We don't need to figure that out right now. So let's use phasers, and let's look at a specific way that you can combine two beams. Let's take, um, say, a laser, or something that is a, a light beam that's well collimated, and let's send it through what's called a Mach Zender interferometer. This is a particular geometry of beam splitters and mirrors that split the light at this beam splitter. So it'll split it into two beams, and then these mirrors reflect the beam so that they recombine at another beam splitter. And when they recombine, we get an output light that propagates over here, and I'll call that um, intensity I1 that we would observe there. So if the input intensity is I0, we can calculate what this intensity I1 will be. And it's going to depend, as we'll see, on the length of the two paths that the light can take. Okay, the lengths are such that the waves, when they get split, get recombined with the same relative phases, and they're going to add up constructively. But if the lengths are such that one beam is delayed relative to the other, they may add up destructively or at some point uh, between constructive and destructive interference. Okay, so let's analyze this using uh, phasers. The position? We'll, we'll see. We'll see um, how precise you need to know these values, L1 and L2, in order to <laughs> say anything about the intensity that comes out. Um, OK, so let's define an input field as a phaser. Treat that phaser as having a magnitude of E naught. And a phase of 0. So we'll define whatever phase the light is at the input as being 0. Now I should say that at the input, the field is actually fluctuating in time. but Every field that we write, regardless of where it is, is going to have the same time dependence. 
And so essentially every phasor is going to have an e to the i omega t on it. So I'm going to drop that from my analysis. Okay, so I'm just going to assume that that's included. Okay, then I can write the output over here as the sum of a wave that traveled along path 1 and a wave that traveled along path 2. Okay, so uh, don't bother to look at the, the math on the slides. Let me work it out. Um, the field at the output, which I'm calling E1, has a term that depends on the field at the input. Let's follow this path, this blue path. That field first reflects off of a 50-50 beam splitter. And the effect of that beam splitter is to reduce its amplitude. Okay, so it gets multiplied by some reflection coefficient, which reduces the value of the amplitude. It then propagates a distance capital L1. And so we'll treat propagation as increasing the phase. by an amount k times L1. If what's twice? We haven't, we've only looked at the reflection from the first beam splitter so far. Now we've got propagation along this path, and now we have transmission through this beam splitter. And so we'll represent transmission by a transmission coefficient. And it's the transmission coefficient of the second beam splitter. Call that T2. Okay, So there's the contribution to the output field due to the input field that reflected from the beam splitter traveled along L2, and then transmitted through the second beam splitter. The principle of superposition says, because we've got two waves adding up, one that traveled along that path, and then one that traveled along this bottom path, we just add up the fields from both of them. So we have to consider the field from the other path. It again starts with an amplitude of E0, and when it transmitted through this beam splitter, that amplitude gets reduced by the factor t sub 1, the transmission coefficient of the first beam splitter. It then propagates a distance L2. So that adds a phase to the light of k times L2. And then it reflects from the second beam splitter. Okay, so I have an expression for the output field in terms of the input field, the beam splitter parameters, and the length of the two paths. Gregory? 
No, we've neglected the, we haven't put anything in to account for these mirrors. If these are perfect mirrors, 100% reflecting, then their only effect is to change the direction the light's propagating. Okay, and along the path that the light is propagating, it's gone a distance L2 or a distance L1. Those lengths are measured along that path. So we don't need to attribute anything in this equation to that. Okay, so this is a 50-50 beam splitter, which means that 50% of the light gets transmitted, 50% gets reflected. But when we say that, 50-50, that's in terms of the irradiance. Half the power gets transmitted, half the power gets reflected. And energy is conserved at the beam splitter phase. Well, the field is proportional, or the field squared is proportional to the power or the irradiance. So the reflectivity coefficients, R1 and R2, are not 1 half. They're one, plus or minus 1 over the square root of 2. Because when you have um, R1 E0 when squared should equal half of E0 squared. So this is half of this is proportional to half of the power. This is proportional to the amount of reflected power. Okay, so we'll let R1 and R2 be minus 1 over the square root of 2. We'll let T1 and T2 be plus 1 over the square root of R2. The signs, I'll just mention how we choose these signs now. We won't go into any more detail on it in the moment, but um, Transmission coefficient will always be positive. The reflection coefficient will either be positive or negative depending on whether the wave goes from a low index material to high index or high index to low index. And we'll deal with that when we introduce Fresnel equa Fresnel's equations at a later point. But for now, the way I've drawn these mirrors, I'm sort of reflecting off of the front face on both sides. And so I'm going to be I'm going to say that's going from low index to high index and treat those values as negative. So what is R2 times T1? It's minus 1 half. Right? And then T2 times R1, also minus 1 half. So I can factor out some terms here. They each have a minus 1 half and an E0 times E to the I K L1 plus e to the IKL2. So we have expressions like this a lot when we're dealing with um, tracing rays through an interferometer, where we have a term which contains the phase of one ray and a term that contains the phase of another ray that are adding. Okay, so we have a very, um, a very common expression here, a very common form of the expression. And the trick that we use to simplify this into something more meaningful is we express these phases in terms of a common and a different differential component. So let me define L bar to equal L1 plus L2 over 2, the average length of the paths. Then I can define delta L as being, say, L1 minus L2 over 2. And that tells me that L1, if I just add these, 
expressions. I can write L1 in terms of L bar plus delta L. L2 is equal to L bar minus delta L. I'm just going to change notation to get this expression into a more useful form. Okay, so let me substitute in these values for L1 and L2. If I do that, you can see that the term e to the ikl bar is common to both terms, or the factor e to the ikl bar is common. So I can pull that out front. I'm going to write this 1 half over here. Because what does this expression now look like? This is cosine. So we're going to use the fact that cosine of theta is e to the i theta plus e to the minus i theta over 2. And that lets us write this as minus e naught e to the i k l bar times cosine of k delta l. So that's good. I've written uh, an expression for the output electric field that is written in such a form that when I find the intensity or the irradiance, this will simplify even further. So the irradiance is proportional to the magnitude of the electric field squared. And that constant of proportionality is epsilon naught c. We'll see that's not really that important because when I multiply these, when I square the electric field, I'm going to have a term that looks like e naught squared. And if I just uh, take all the things that don't depend on the e naught squared, I can write my final expression in terms of i naught, thereby uh, circumventing the whole issue with constants of proportionality. So. Let me do this on the other side so that if you're in the back, you can see. I1 is going to be epsilon naught c times the absolute value of e squared, or e times its complex conjugate. So I have e naught. That was a real quantity, and I'm going to square that. I have this complex number here with a magnitude of 1. When I take the absolute value of this, the absolute value is 1. If I multiply this by its complex conjugate, I have e to the ikl times e to the minus ikl. So that just that gets dropped from the expression. And then I have this uh, cosine squared k delta l. And if you remember that all my phasers, I said, we're going to have this e to the i omega t dependence. I could add that in if I want here.
And you can see that e to the i omega t times e to the minus i omega t, those terms are going to cancel as well, just like this, this term did here. Okay, so I'm going to define this quantity here as i naught. That was the irradiance of the input field. So the irradiance of the output is equal to the irradiance of the input and varies depending on how much path length difference I have between the two arms. So the largest it can be is that of the input field. Before we started this, I said, what happens if you have two waves, you add them up, and we said their irradiance would be four times that of either individual wave. Does that not agree with the statement, which says when you add these two waves up, their irradiance is equal to the equal at Maximum is equal to that of the input field. How do I reconcile those two, cons- two statements? Well, actually, this, this I naught is not the irradiance of the two fields that I was adding up. It was the irradiance of the, the field out here that got split. The irradiance of these two fields is less than that over here. Right? Half the power goes in each direction. So if half the power goes in each direction, then it appears that I'm adding up two waves that each have half i naught irradiance. And when I add them up, I get a maximum of i naught. That seems reasonable. But before I said I would get four times the irradiance of either wave. And here I'm getting two times the irradiance of either wave. So there's still something missing. But before we talk about what's missing, let's talk about what we have. Um, we have an intensity at the output, or an irradiance at the output, which depends, obviously, on how much light we put in. But then it fluctuates over a length scale. Let's see, one full fluctuation here corresponds to um, k delta L equaling pi. So k is 2 pi over wavelength. So the pi's cancel out. So a change in the position of one of the mirrors by half a wavelength causes the irradiance of the output to go from a maximum to zero. So if you put in a reasonable amount of light where it's easy to, dis- uh, to discern whether you're getting that light at the output or not, then moving the mirror a very small amount, a few hundred nanometers, can essentially turn that light on or off. So you have a very sensitive way to observe the relative position of the two mirrors at the output here. So this is a very useful instrument for measuring 
the relative change of optical path lengths for two paths. We'll see all sorts of applications for it in the homework and in class examples. For now, let's go back to that question of conservation of energy. Okay, so what happens if the path length is such that there's destructive interference and there's no power coming out? Where does the power go? For hints, you can look at the slide. I'm, I've only considered the power that came out here to the right of this beam splitter. But this beam splitter, if you look at the red beam, it's going to reflect half of its irradiance and it's going to transmit half of its irradiance. So I have to also consider the light that comes out this other port, call these ports. Two input ports, two output ports, and I've only considered one output port. So you might be able to guess already what the functional form of I2 looks like. It should be the complement to this. So if I plotted I2, it should look like that. And mathematically, what changes is that the one path, the light reflects twice. So I get an R1 times R2. The other path, it transmits twice. So I have T1 times T2. Whereas over there, I had R1, T1, or R1, T2. T1R2. So the form of this expression is a little different. Now, the other thing that changes, before I had reflection from what I call the front surface of both optics. But now, I have reflection from the front surface. And then here, I'm, my diagram has the reflection from the back surface of the optic. So I'm going from high index to low index. That gives rise to a different sign for the reflection coefficient. And again, we haven't derived that or, or formally talked about it, but we will. But I'll just mention that now. You have a different sign for the reflection coefficient. And as a result, one of these products is positive and one of them is negative. So instead of having two terms like this that add, we have a subtraction. And that doesn't look like cosine. It looks like a sine. So our final expression would be proportional to the sine squared of k times the path length difference. And that would be this red curve. So there's a physical device that splits and recombines light. Um, let's go back to that first question. What if I have two waves that each independently has an amplitude of 1 and an intensity of 1? And I add them up and then measure their total intensity. I'm going to get a quantity that's four times that of either beam. The fields add up 
two unit amplitude fields, it's going to double the electric field. When I square that, I'm going to get an intensity that's four times larger. Seems to be a paradox. How could I create this device? How could I take two fields and get them to add up? I want to take two waves and get them to, to overlap. What do I do with them? So you could take a beam splitter. So here's one wave, and here's the other. You could put them into the beam splitter, which in the time reverse of splitting a beam is combining a beam. You could try to combine them. And when you do that, there's actually two different outputs. And so when you add these things up, the output here would be larger than either of these individual beams, but the output here would be less, and vice versa. Depending on the phase of the incoming beams, right. Okay. Um, Let's consider another type of interferometer that's widely used. It's called the Fabry-Pro interferometer. This is um, basically a laser cavity. Laser cavities are Fabry-Pro interferometers with some gain medium inside. These are commonly used outside of laser cavities as well. And essentially, light is directed into this cavity. and because these mirrors aren't perfectly 100% reflecting, some of the light, most of the light would just leak, would reflect off of these mirrors, but some of it leaks through. The light that leaks through bounces around many times, and every time it does, some of it leaks out the back. Some of it leaks out the front, too, and I haven't shown that on the diagram. But you get all these fields leaking out the back, and they add up. And so I've, I've shown it here with them displaced, but if you launch this ray on axis, then these different paths are all collinear. Okay, so that's another example where you have multiple fields adding up. And we have to use the principle of superposition to add up the fields. We can talk about the intensity or the irradiance of the light that, that leaks through. And again, it's going to depend on the relative path length of the fields that are adding up. So we consider this field right here and the field that I've shown right above it. The difference between them is that the field above it has traveled an extra 2L. Right. It's also experienced two extra reflections, so its amplitude would be a little bit less. And so each successive beam that's adding up has an additional phase of 2L. Okay, so let's use phasers to just graphically try to get a picture of how those fields might add up and how that output field is going to depend on that length, L. So let me draw a phaser that represents the output field here. And I'll just arbitrarily pick a phase for that output field and a uh, magnitude. The light that travels one more round trip in the cavity and then leaks out, you said two things are going to happen to it. One, its magnitude is going to be decreased because it's 
reflected twice from the mirrors. And so the second one will have a slightly shorter phaser for the second beam will be sh slightly shorter. And what about its phase? Its phase has increased. So phi naught is the phase of the first beam. Phi 1, the phase of the second beam, is going to be phi naught plus 2 delta L times K. So you, always, you can convert a length into a phase by multiplying by K. Where K is 2 pi over the wavelength. So delta L times K, or 2 delta L times K, is the number of wavelengths that the light has traveled times 2 pi. The 2 pi over lambda is our K. So the number of wavelengths times 2 pi is the amount of phase. OK, so phi 1 is different than phi naught. So the angle is different. So I'll add these vectors up, these phasers up as vectors. And this angle between phi naught and phi 1 is 2 delta LK. I don't know what it is. Um, I would have to know the length and the wavelength in order to determine what it is. So I'll just draw for a general case some angle there. So these represent the phasers for the first two beams coming out of my cavity. There's a third beam. What does the third beam look like relative to the second? What does the third phaser look like relative to the second? It's a little shorter, and it's rotated by an additional 2L delta K. So the same amount of rotation I had here, I have again. So this is a. Uh, this was E1, this is E2, this is E3. And I can keep adding these, these uh, phasers up. And they're going to keep getting shorter and rotating. And so this goes on in infinitely. But you can sort of see what's going to happen. They're going to spiral to a point. And that point represents the vector sum of all the phasers that contribute to the output beam. So that's the output field. How does that output field change as the length of the cavity changes? What happens if I decrease the cavity length a little bit? The angle between each additional phaser would decrease. So if I decrease the cavity length here a little bit, this phaser would, this kink would sort of straighten out. All the kinks in this diagram would sort of straighten out a little bit. And the whole thing would sort of unroll a little bit. What happens if I decrease the cavity length or, or set the cavity length such that 2 delta LK is some integer multiple of 2 pi? Then what happens to all these angles? Mm -hmm. 
yeah, the angles don't change. If this is an integer multiple of 2 pi, then this vector e2 is parallel to vector e1. And all these vectors add up in a straight line. So what's going to happen to the output vector when that happens? It's going to become much, much longer. Because all these waves are adding coherently, as opposed to can sort of canceling each other out or partially canceling each other out. And so you can sort of imagine, and maybe I should create an animation of this, but I haven't done that. As you change delta L, um, as long as that resonant condition is not met, so resonance means 2, L, 2 delta LK is some integer multiple of 2 pi. We say the system is on resonance when that condition is met. As long as that's not met, these phasers are going to wind around. And even if that angle between them is only slight, the fact that you can have um, many beams adding up causes them to still wrap around and spiral around as you add up an infinite number and produce an output field that's relatively small compared to the length of that spiral. Right? As, as the length changes of the cavity, this thing's going to unwind, but not until all of the vectors are actually aligned in a straight line, will they produce an output field that's substantially larger. And so if we were to plot the output field as a function of delta L, just like we did over there for the two-beam interferometer, for this, which is called a multiple-beam interferometer, for obvious reasons, the output field is negligibly small until we get to a very narrow region around that resonance condition when all these vectors add up coherently. And every time the length changes by an amount that brings us back onto resonance, we get another peak. Mark? Okay, so let me see if I have that worked out in the notes before I do it on the board. I don't. Okay, so if we write an expression for the electric field at the output in terms of the input, we can see how they, to calculate it. So E out is equal to, and I'm going to factor out some common terms, E naught times um, E naught times e to the i by 1 times 1. That's the first direct, directly uh, reflected, or directly transmitted field, plus r1, r2, e to the i two delta l times k, plus the next field that gets reflected has traveled twice, has traveled two round trips. So I have a 2 in this uh, 
argument for the exponent. And it's reflected off of each front and back mirror twice. So that term gets squared. And so for the nth field, That field has reflected from the front and back mirrors n times and has traveled n round trips around the cavity. Okay, so that's a good question. If uh, if if the light is not transmitted through this direction, where does, it, where does the, the power have to go in this direction? And likewise, when the light is transmitting in this direction, when it's on resonance, then there will be a reduction in the directly reflected power. And if these mirrors are lossless and have equal, equal amplitude reflection coefficients, then on resonance, no light will reflect from this cavity, which is kind of an interesting thing. You take a mirror. Right, you shine light from it, light on it, and the light reflects. You put another mirror behind it and adjust the position of that second mirror, and in a proper position, none of that light reflects. This becomes transmissive. So, kind of neat. Don't try it with your bathroom mirror because it's wavelength dependent. Right? This, this K is wavelength dependent. Okay, well, we want to evaluate this infinite series. Does that look like something we can do? It's a geometric series, so you can. And this looks like, um, so we use the fact that uh, we use that relation for a geometric series to write this. So you can sort of see what's happening now. When we adjust delta L, um, only, when, only when this term, this exponent, is equal to 1 do I get significant power through the cavity. When this exponent has a magnitude of 1 and a phase of 0, then this term is real. We have 1 minus the product of the reflection coefficients. If these mirrors are nearly 100% reflective, then this term has a magnitude that's almost equal to 1. I get 1 minus a number that's almost equal to 1. I get a very small number in the denominator. It means a very large value for the output field. But if this phase is not an integer multiple of 2 pi, then this is just some complex number that's not particularly close to 1. This denominator is not particularly small, and the overall number is not particularly large. 
graph at the output from the front view, right? Nope. Nope, they're different. They are different. Well, I mean, the mask rule should be in a different spot, but it should look. They're, they're complements of each other. So if you were to plot the reflected field, it would look like this. And that's in the case where it's lossless. Well, the di there's a difference. There's a physical difference. The light that's adding up here has all been through the interferometer. Every single beam adding up over here has been through this cavity once. But the light reflecting over here consists of the light that's leaked through from the internal fields, but there's also a directly reflected field. And so you essentially have the same thing over here that you had over here, plus a directly reflected field. That plus a directly reflected field is what gives rise to the offset here. And that directly reflected field is out of phase with the light which would leak through, which is why instead of adding up, it would subtract. Okay, And we'll, talk, we'll go over this more um, in later classes. So right now, that's an example of, of multiple beam interference. Now, this all assumes that the light is coherent. And we need to define what we mean by that. We've talked about monochromatic waves largely because our expressions for uh, propagating waves required that we had some particular frequency of light in order to write that sinusoidal oscillation that represents our solution to the wave equation. Well, any light which is perfectly monochromatic that has a true single frequency is necessarily coherent. And coherent means the, uh, if you plotted the field as a function of time or as a function of propagation distance, whatever form you had to the wave, say a cosine wave, that cosine wave train doesn't change in time. So if you go, if you observe the pattern of the wave at some time, and then you observe the pattern at an arbitrarily later point in time, there's always going to be a direct relationship. If that later point in time is an integer multiple of the period of the wave, then you're going to reproduce the same waveform at a later point in time. In practice, most of the sources of light that we encounter on a daily, uh, throughout our day, are not coherent. Um, room lights, the sunlight, all those things are not coherent. We can describe them for very short periods of time as being sinusoidal variations, but the phase of these sinusoids keeps getting scrambled. And so this is coherent. And an incoherent source might have the same sort of sinusoidal dependence for a short period of time, but its phase is not continually evolving. It has these points where the phase just sort of 
changes for no apparent reason. Okay, now physically that might occur because I think I mentioned this before, you might have oscillating charges emitting the wave. So you say you have a, an electron cloud oscillating around its nucleus and it's in the hot sun so it's oscillating really fast and then it gets bumped into by its neighbor and all of a sudden it gets distorted changes and it continues to oscillate but now its orientation is different and its phase has changed. So over a short period of time you can say okay yeah that's, there's a certain frequency associated with that wave but over a long time interval you don't see a continuous sinusoidal wave train. Okay, so how frequently or how long in time you have to look before you get one of these phase changes is dependent on how coherent the light is. So we can talk about the coherence time of light. The coherence time is, is this. On average, how long you have to wait before the, uh, the phase gets disturbed. And so light can have sort of an arbitrary amount of coherence. We tend to think of things as coherent, things like laser, uh, well, primarily laser sources. Those are um, things where the coherence time is, is large compared to the, uh, say, the response time of a, a measurement system. And things we treat as incoherent are things where this, this uh, time frame is too small to really be observed. Okay, so for sunlight, the coherence time might be a nanosecond, whereas for a laser, it might be a millisecond. Okay, you can convert that into a coherence length by multiplying it by the speed of light. And that's how far the light has propagated, or how far any one of these individual pulse trains, prop, how long it is in, in physical length. So we can talk about the coherence time or the coherence length. So what's important here is that when we're talking about adding up waves, we've been assuming that um, the phase relationship between different beams was, was uh, completely defined by um, whatever phase difference we express due to the path length or due to some, uh, some parameter of the problem. That was the phase difference. And that requires that the two waves be completely coherent and not changing in time. Their, their relative phase difference not changing in time. If it is randomly varying, then sort of everything we've been describing is basically out the window. Uh, so when we add up incoherent light, we do about what you might expect. We add up the intensities. We add up the irradiances. We say that take two flashlights, they're both incoherent, they both produce one watt per meter squared. We shine them both on the same spot on the ground, we'll see two watts per meter squared. We don't have to add their electric fields first. We could, and if we did, what we'd find is that the electric fields at one moment are in phase, and then at another moment they're out of phase, and they keep jumping between the in phase and out of phase, and we'd have to average. And we'd get an average, which gave us the same result as if we just added their irradiances. Okay, so let's consider this Mach-Zender interferometer again, and now let's illuminate it with a flashlight or sunlight, or some incoherent light. We can go through the whole analysis and derive the same expressions for the output irradiance that we had before, and those are still valid. However, the difference is that the K 
KL1 minus KL2 is a phase difference between the two beams. And that phase difference, which I'll call phi, not only depends on this path length difference, but it also depends on the uh, fluctuations in the input phase. Right? If there's a fluctuation in the input phase, and L1 and L2 are exactly equal, then whatever that fluctuation, that little bump is in the input uh, phase, will arrive from both beams at the same time at the output. But if these lengths are not equal, and we have a wave train that's sinusoidal in time for a brief period, and then it changes, and we get a completely incoherent, different sinusoidal wave train. And if these lengths are different, then what arrives here is going to be due to the input light going in this path and the input light going to this path will arrive at different times. And we'll be trying to add up two parts of the wave that may not have any direct phase relationship between them. So we have to consider all possible values for this phi. So we have to integrate from 0 to 2 pi and divide by 2 pi to average our expression. And when we integrate cosine squared over a full period, its average is 1 half. So the average irradiance at I1 or at I2 is half of that that we would have at I0. So that's about what you expect. You send in light, and it does some stuff here in the interferometer. And in the end, there's two places it can come out. Half of the, intent, half the irradiance comes out at each point. Now at any, you looked at a, over a very short time scale, what you'd see is all the light adding up say in phase here and out of phase there, and then flipping or some point in between, but when averaged over physical observation times, you lose, lose sight of that constructive and destructive interference. Okay, so assuming we have coherent light, then we can talk about what happens not only when you have waves of different phases, but waves of different frequency. So frequency is just the time rate of change of the phase, if you think about it. If the phase of this beam is 2 pi f times t, the time rate of change of the phase is, is that frequency. So two beams of different frequencies might start off in phase, but as they propagate, they can drift out of phase, and then drift back in phase, drift out of phase, as they oscillate at different frequencies. So when we add those up, you can see if I add up these two waves, at this point right here, they're adding up in phase, and I'm going to get a larger amplitude. And at a point over here, the peaks of the blue wave line up to the troughs of the red wave. I think you've probably seen this in your uh, physics 50 or equivalent course. So what we get is this modulated waveform. We get constructive interference, destructive, constructive, destructive, constructive. And the sum, which is this purple wave, is sinusoidal with an average frequency, or with a frequency that's the average of the two waves we're adding. And it has this envelope that looks like the difference in the frequencies. So again, we can use our phasor notation to derive that. So I've written out phasors for two waves. 
let me evaluate them at r equals 0. So I'll just evaluate how those, uh, the sum of those waves change in time. And I can say e1 plus e2 is equal to e0. I'm going to factor out the common e0 and write it as e to the, I guess I have to write this as minus 2 pi f1t plus, that's times i, e to the minus i 2 pi f2t. And again, I'm going to say that f bar equals f1 plus f2 over 2, and delta f is f1 minus f2 over 2. That lets me write this expression in terms of the average frequency and the difference frequencies. Now, just like I did before, I can say this difference frequency, if I divide it by 2i, so I'll also multiply the expression by 2i so that I don't change the value of the expression, then this term here, what does that look like? It looks like sine. So this would be minus sine of this argument. And what I end up with is a phaser that has an amplitude of 2e naught. So this was e naught right here. The phaser has an amplitude of 2 e naught. Its phase, I can write this i, by the way, as plus pi over 2, some phase offset here on my exponential function. The phase is oscillating at the average frequency, f bar. Okay, So this purple function is oscillating at the average frequency of the red and blue waves. But its amplitude, its amplitude is is not constant in time. So if I let this term in brackets be the amplitude, you can see there's a slow variation. Slow if the two frequencies are close together. So if their separation is less, there is, is much less than their average frequency. Okay, so there's a slow variation in time that looks sinusoidal, and that's what I have here. Slow increase, and then a decrease. You can see the sinusoidal envelope to this average frequency wave. 
Well, okay, so this is very useful, for example, if you have two lasers and you want them to have the same frequency. You might do that because you're, um, you're doing an experiment where you're measuring the timing of things and you have multiple lasers and you're using the period of oscillation as your clock. Right? So how many laser wavelengths or how many laser periods uh, correspond to different things that happen in your, in your measurement? Well, you need those two lasers to have the same frequency in order to synchronize your clocks. And so what you could do is you could combine them with a beam splitter, and if they're not at the same frequency, you'd see this beep. Okay, you can measure that on a photodetector. That's called a heterodyne signal. It's a, it's a signal that depends on, or that oscillates at the difference frequency. So if you measure that difference frequency, you could then feed back and adjust the laser frequency, one of the laser frequencies, to reduce that beating. And you can set up a closed circuit feedback loop that locks one laser onto the other. Okay, so that's, it's very commonly used for that. Um, it could also be used if you have, say, one laser, you sample a little bit of it, and then let's say you reflect the other end off of the bumper of a speeding car, and it scatters back, and you combine it with what you sent out, that returning light is going to be Doppler shifted. So there's two different frequencies. You can measure the frequency difference by the beat note of those two. Right? That tells you how fast the car is moving and whether or not it gets a ticket. So there's a practical application of this. Okay, so we call. Yeah, let me just put that up there for just a second. So we, we describe the beat frequency as how frequently it goes from a maximum to another maximum. Right? And so the, the envelope is this sinusoidal oscillation that actually one period of the envelope is from here to there. Right? But one period of the beat is only half of that. Okay, just, just the way it's, it's described. OK, so let's have some fun. Here are three different, yeah, three different uh, waves that I've essentially drawn. I've, I've drawn a, uh, just focus on this, this one right here, um, a little graph, a contour plot that shows um, kx, sine kx, plotted on my computer such that there are eight periods of that sine wave across the width of that display. So you can see, you should be able to see eight, three, four, five, six, seven, eight bright bands, eight dark bands. Right? And so I'll call that k equals eight. The spatial frequency equals eight. This one down here has 10 bright bands. This one has 12. This one has 15. You can count those if you want. And what I've done is I've copied each of these up here and set the transparency to 50%. So I can drag this over. And see what happens if we add up two waves of the same frequency. If the phase is identical, then the peaks overlap, the troughs overlap. Here, the dark parts stay dark, the bright parts stay bright. But if I adjust the phase, right, I can find a point where the dark parts of one, maybe I'll offset it a little bit, the dark parts of one overlap with the light parts of the other. 
and vice versa. And so the average intensity is, is just, it's just gray, right? right and it just depends on the phase difference whether I get, um, whether I get these fringes being washed out or not. What do you think will happen if I drag that down into the k equals 10 line? They, they can't add up constructively or destructively across the whole region because they have different frequencies. Okay, so over here and over here, we get sort of uh, the fringes washing out. And over here and at the two ends, we get the full contrast. Okay, so we have two regions that are washed out. We have two because the difference in the k vector, the difference in the frequencies is two. Right, so that's this term here, the delta f was two, or delta k was two. Okay, so if I take the k equals 12 strip and put it over the k equals 15, what am I going to see? see three. You can see three gray bands. And now if I adjust the phase by moving left and right, what's going to happen to the position of those gray bands? Yeah. So here's something kind of interesting. I'm moving to the right, but what's the moving of the band? The, yeah, the bands are moving to the left. So if you have different waves of different frequency, and they're moving at different velocities. Okay, so the k equals 15 band is stationary, and the k equals 12 band is moving to the right. The uh, apparent motion of their sum can actually be in a completely different direction or at a completely different speed. Okay. We'd say that the phase velocity of the k equals 15 band is zero. The phase velocity of the k equals 12 band is whatever rate I'm moving it to the right. But the group velocity, when you group them together, appears to be going to the left. Okay, so I, I mentioned before that we discovered there's a difference between the phase and group velocity of light. And if you're only dealing with a single frequency of wave, that never comes into play. But if you have multiple frequencies, like we have here, and they're moving at different rates, because the material they're propagating in is dispersive, different wavelengths travel at different speeds, then we find that their overall waveform will propagate at a different rate than the individual components. And a couple more of those little demonstrations to do before we, uh, before we leave. If the waves, if we think about a three-dimensional uh, wavefront, so maybe we have plane waves. We let these lines represent the planes of the wavefronts. And we overlap two waves, but they're not aligned. So rather than using a beam splitter, we just across two beams in space. We have two beams that aren't aligned. And you can see, sort of graphically and visually, if you stare at this, that there's regions where they're going to sort of constructively interfere and then regions where they destructively interfere. Okay, so here is, here are two point sources. So imagine those as ripples in a pond or sources for spherical waves of light. And again, Here's one that's drawn in full contrast. This one, I've turned the transparency down to 50%, so I can overlap these. 
Right? And if I overlap those point sources directly on top of each other, what would you expect the resulting uh, interference pattern to look like? It should be the same as what you'd have for a single source. Just okay, that'd be sort of if we could if we could resolve difference in brightness, this would be like twice as bright. But now let me move um, one point source relative to the other. So you see some interesting effects. And so this has applications all over. I mean, these are your two speakers. So Daniel, you know about setting up home theater systems. Where do you want to sit relative to your speakers? Yeah, the center. So center point, somewhere along this line. These are your two speakers. Your TV's right here. You want to sit somewhere here where you actually have constructive interference rather than over here where you'd have destructive interference. Right? So if your sister sits over here, she doesn't get to hear anything. Or she at least doesn't get to hear anything at the frequency that corresponds to this particular diagram. So this is all for a single frequency of wave. Um, and for light, a similar type of thing. Um, if you have two point sources that are displaced, you're going to get these, these patterns. And we call them interference patterns. Right, and this happens all the time. When you look at a soap bubble, right, you see the colors smeared around. Those are interference fringes. They're interference patterns. Light reflects off of the front of the bubble and the back of the bubble. I said sunlight is incoherent. At least it's incoherent when you do laboratory scale things. But soap bubble is only a few, a few angstroms thick. And so the light that reflects off the front and the light that reflects off of the back, the coherence length is actually longer than the twice the thickness of the soap bubble. So you get interference effects. Certain frequencies will add up constructively. Certain ones will add up destructively, depending on the thickness of the film. And you see this, I mean, it's not as regular because the soap film is in a uniform thickness. You see these interference patterns. We can learn a lot about materials by, by studying the interference patterns. And so we'll do a lot more of that uh, later in the week, or I guess next week. There's a new homework up. Make sure to check that out. And uh, as many of you discovered, the answers in the back of the book aren't always right. So if you find that you're not getting the right answer and you double check, just post that in the discussion board uh, to see if others are having the same problem.